You're listening to the Ranch Church Podcast. For more information and service times, go to ranchchurch.com. Time to talk about Israel. So we don't know exactly what part of the prophetic calendar we're on. So I don't know where you're at in your knowledge of the Bible. I don't know which everyone understands about Scripture related to the timeline. But what you have to understand, at least in this very moment, is that knowledge of Israel and what's going on with Israel creates a prophetic timeline. So it does. It tells us things that are going on with God right now. tells us things that are going on with God in the future. Now listen. I'm not going to go through all the current events. In fact, I'm barely going to make an introductory comment, and then we're going to leave those alone. I'm actually going to open the Bible with you and just camp on Scripture. Can you handle that? So, so listen, we do know certain things that are very complex. For example, we understand that the land of Israel, right, the land of Israel, that, that there were people that lived there. And there were other conquerors. So, for example, there was the Ottoman Empire. Again, I'll just do this very quickly. There was the Ottoman Empire. Well, the Ottoman Empire never said, hey, there's Palestinians there, and we should have, they should have their own land. There was nothing called Palestinian people. Palestinian people are a combination of two groups, Jews and Arabs. <laughs> they have lived together and commingled, and if you were to get their bloodline out, you'd realize that they're actually brothers in that way, even though they have different affiliations. Right, so Egypt had control of the land at one time. And then we had uh, others that had control of land at one time. And so, so no group ever thought that. Those are all of the, the sociological issues related to the land, and I'm not going to cover those. Not because I don't understand them. Frankly, I love them. But I'm worried about you, and I'm worried about us. We have to understand what the Bible says. Sociology, current events, they come and go. The Bible is your rock, and you need to understand what the Scripture says about that so you can understand the days in which we're in. Okay, so I have a basic outline of some principles, and I'll use a handful of verses that I'm going to ask you to turn to in your Bible, whether it's through uh, your Bible that's written or through a digital device. So here's the first point of an outline that I want you to understand, that when we talk about Israel, that when we talk about the prophetic timeline, we're talking about from the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Gethsemane. We're talking about a prophetic timeline. We're going from Eden, the very origin of Eden. That's Adam and Eve, all the way to Gethsemane, where Jesus would then go and be on the cross. So that's the first principle that I want you to understand. And you have to internalize that in order to understand the prophetic timeline of God. So on our Tuesday night group, when we study the Bible, we use a phraseology like this that I've given to us, and it works like this. Listen, the kingdom of God is dragging history with it, not the other way around. History is not dragging the kingdom of God around at all. It is actually the kingdom of God that is actually dragging history where it needs to go. And so right now, we are living in a day and age when the kingdom of God is having a certain kind of manifestation, which I'll mention more biblically at the end, and it is dragging human history there. So none of this is an accident. All the details that we can talk about in terms of Israel, in terms of current events, whether it's 1947, 48, 67, 72, or last week, those are all being captured by the kingdom of God to take history where it needs to go. 
which is in the fulfillment of Christ coming back, the rapture of the church and for things that glorify God. So in Eden, what God did, what God did was he created a place where he could begin a race of people so that all people would know him. That's Adam and Eve. The reason for you and I being created and the reason for Adam and Eve being created is so that everybody could know God. That's the whole purpose of it. So he makes human beings who can know him, and he wants everyone to know him. He wants every race, every people, all the ethnos groups that there are in the history of the world, he wants every single person to know him. Okay, that's the good news. Now there's some bad news that happened in the Garden of Eden, and if you've been in Sunday school or a part of our church, you understand this. You understand that Adam and Eve were created by God. They were absolutely created by God. I'm going to go to Genesis chapter 3:15 here. And they were created by God. And now something that happened is that they actually sinned. They were tempted by Satan. They fell into sin. And you and I tend to think about sin, and we don't think of it strong enough. You know, so we'll hear about them being tempted and about the things that they were tempted about. And we'd say, well, why is that a big deal? It is a big deal because it's in direct rebellion to God. And because of that, now we would actually have a curse. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the Bible will say, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offsprings, meaning there will now be a very serious divide, an anger, a hostility between the, what is now known as the demonic world and humans. He shall bruise your head. That is speaking of the Messiah, and you shall bruise his heel. So the Messiah will ultimately come and destroy Satan. He will. He will destroy Satan. He will destroy sin. He will destroy Satan. He will destroy death. That will actually take place. And, and yet, here we are in this in-between time where we're on our way with the kingdom of God through the fulfillment of those things after Christ has come. Related to what is taking place there, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says the following. Uh, I love this. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race. This now speaks to you and I. This is the church. This is Christians. This is born-again people. Do you ever felt left out? Ever felt left out socially or maybe with your family? Maybe that's your background. Well, God's not leaving you out. He's including you. You are chosen. That's what this verse says. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous life. Once you were not his people. Is that true of you? Definitely true of your pastor. Once I was not a Christian. I was not born again. I was totally rebellious to God. I was very immoral. And yet God came and saved me, cleansed me, gave me a brand new purpose in life and set me on that place, that place by the blood of Christ. So now you were not as, once you were not his people, but now you are his people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received what? What does it say in your Bible? Mercy. But once we didn't have these things, but now we do. And so we're free as we follow. So 
speaking about the Garden of Eden to Gethsemane, helping you understand a very important theological point in your Bible related. Afterwards, afterwards in Genesis, after the fall, a place that had no death in it, all of a sudden death came through sin. The only way God could begin to fix that was by an animal sacrifice. So God himself, in Genesis, towards the end of Genesis chapter 3, he slaughters an animal. We know that because the account says that they had tried to put loincloths on him, which is what you and I do with our sin, right? We try and cover our sin. So they tried to cover their bodies with the smallest of things that were completely ridiculous. And then God comes, and then he slaughters an animal as a blood sacrifice unto himself, and he covers Adam and Eve physically with the leather of that and gives them garments so that they would not be naked in that way. And so there was a blood sacrifice in Eden. But there was also, Gethsemane is really fascinating because it's actually the location of a blood sacrifice. So go with me here. Oddly enough, the tabernacle originally was about the size of this tent, so it's quite charming to me. Our tent size is not far off from the tabernacle. So the tabernacle was in the wilderness. We finally get to Jerusalem. Now we're in Jerusalem. We have a temple. And in Solomon's day, as best we understand historically, what would lead to the Mount of Olives on the east side was a bridge, a nice long bridge that left. The temple would be over here, and this bridge would come and land at the Mount of Olives. Why? Glad you asked. Well, because over here at the temple, as I'm pacing around over here at the temple, we're going to have a Passover celebration. And at the Passover celebration, we're going to get a red heifer, and we're going to sacrifice the red heifer. But the red heifer has to be out of the camp, out of the camp excuse me. Now, God did not tell them to build the bridge. God did not tell them to go that far out of the camp. Those are all man things. But it's what they did. And if you know Solomon, Solomon taking a few things farther than he needed to. So he's going to build a bridge. And he goes, I know, we're going to have the red heifer go all the way out over there. Well, God would still redeem that, even though we didn't tell him to do that. Because when you come all the way over here, where that land bridge, land, where, excuse me, not land bridge, where the bridge ends, and they get off, and they sacrifice the heifer, is actually at that spot that we call Gethsemane. And it's amazing, the prophetic significance of that. And that's where Jesus would be on his knees praying, do I have to go to the cross? Yes, you do. And so he was not sacrificed at Gethsemane, not at all, but that would be the place of that intense drama that he would have with God. So why is this? Why is this? It's because, well, you and I, as I said by introductory comments, you and I had guilt before God. Ever felt guilty? I have. Ever had shame linger over you? Ever try and like write down, I won't have shame today. I won't have shame today. I won't feel shame today. I will not feel ashamed today. Okay, I don't feel ashamed. And you walk five steps and it's all back on you. You know, that's a spiritual thing. And so the cross solves that. That's why Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, says that in Christ we have no shame. There's been a law. The law of the spirit of life has removed from us the law of sin and death. And so, so he has removed death from us. He's removed shame from us and guilt from us. 
He's removed the power of demons to have authority over us. And this is the purpose of going from Eden all the way to Gethsemane. I want you to understand the gospel as we get ready to talk about Israel. All right, so we'll move on from there. We'll move on from there to talk about patriarchs, prophets, King David to King Messiah. So from patriarchs and prophets and King David to King Messiah. So this will really be a Bible study and a bit of the Old Testament. Abraham, in Genesis chapter 22, is taken to a place called Mount Moriah. Genesis chapter 22. And that is Jerusalem. We know that as we know ancient times and ancient periods, that he goes there to sacrifice Isaac. And then God is not going to let him sacrifice Isaac. That was that was what he was going to remove from Abraham. He was not going to engage in child sacrifice, but he wanted something to remove from Abraham, and he knew what was going to take place. Abraham is willing to go forward in faith, and God stops him, removes from his heart the things that needed to be removed from his heart. All of that takes place in Jerusalem. We don't know all the specific locations of that. Jerusalem proper is like a wedding cake. So you've seen a wedding cake, Yes. So you have the top of the cake, smaller, and then it goes out wider, and then it goes out wider, then it goes out wider. That's Jerusalem. And there's a valley on at least two sides and sort of a third, but not the fourth. We don't know where that was, but it was there in Jerusalem where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. Abraham's son had a few kids, and so he has Jacob. Jacob is actually Abraham's grandson. And there's going to be 12 sons that Jacob's going to have, and they're going to make 12 tribes. So we have Abraham, who's the father. He has a son named Isaac. Isaac has another son named Jacob. There's another one named Esau. I'll come back to that later in another teaching on this subject matter. But we'll stay with Isaac for the moment. And so there's going to be these 12 tribes that come from Jacob. And these 12 tribes will actually go on to populate the land, and create a monarchy. Go with me way of reference to 2 Samuel. We're going to go into 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, I want to do this slowly because I want you to see this proper in the Bible. The best reference is in verse 10, although you could read the whole chapter. But for time and illustration, I'll start at 2 Samuel verse 10. This is speaking about David. Remember, patriarchs and prophets and King David, all the way to King Messiah. And I will appoint a place, the Bible says, for my people Israel. So think about verse 10, that very first statement. I will appoint a place. What place? Jerusalem, Israel, the land. God says, I will appoint this land and this place for Israel. And I will plant them. So think about that phrase, plant them. This is my land. These are my people. And I am planting them right here. In the timeline here of this teaching, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, they've already been planted. This is actually the Davidic dynasty, as you're going to hear about in a moment. Moreover, the Lord declares to you what the Lord, the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, verse 12, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from your offspring after you. So what has he said there? 
He said, you're going to die, David. Why is David going to die? Because he's a human being. So he's going to die, and he's going to go be with the Lord. David, you are now the king. You are now my king. You're a man after my own heart. You're going to come home, be with me now. And now I'm not done with, what, with, with you and what the work that you've done. I will raise up from your offspring after you who shall come from your body, who shall come from your body. You should highlight that. I will establish his kingdom. So somebody in this Davidic line, church, are you with me? Okay, somebody who's from the line of David must arrive. Now, who's this person? And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David was not going to live forever. This is a prophecy. This is a prophetic way of understanding Jesus. There is going to come somebody, David, from you. He will actually be my son, and he's going to come from you, and he will actually sit on the throne of David and in this kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Verse 14 is referencing Israel proper, not Jesus. For when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put before you. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made, back to that prophecy, shall be made sure forever before me. Your, your throne shall be established forever. And in accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, the prophet Nathan spoke to David. That is also repeated in First, in first Chronicles 7.14, which I will not literally read out loud for you. All right, so it's time to talk about Israel. All right, it's time to talk about Israel. And there's this, all this conversation about should the Jews be in the land? The answer is yes, absolutely. Then there's a conversation of, well, where do we begin? You know, do we begin in whoever had the land in 1967? Do we begin with whoever had the land in 1948? A lot of critics from these say, well, we should go to the very beginning. Actually, I just saw some people debate about this, which was a little comedic. And it's like, well, well, where beginning do you want? Let's go back to Father Abraham with Mount Moriah. Let's go back to David and the prophecy of the forever lineage that was going to be there from the very, very beginning. And there was no other people group that could make this kind of a claim. Let me tell you how important this is, <laughs> if I can't stress it enough. That when you go to Jesus, this would be Matthew chapter 1. This would be Luke chapter 3. So Matthew chapter 1, what do you have there? You have the genealogy of Jesus. And in Luke chapter 3, what you have there, the genealogy of Jesus. One part of the genealogy is from Mary, the other from Joseph. And the point and principle of all of that is that Jesus sits on the eternal Davidic throne of David as the king. And because of that, you and I, as born-again Christians, can be saved. Because if that's not the case, well, we are really fools. And that means that he is not the Messiah. The Messiah would sit on that throne forever. And he does. And he will again in a manifestation on earth. Jesus is David's forever son. 
so fascinating that King David was a shepherd, right? He was a shepherd. You all can say the word shepherd out loud if you want. Sounds nice as it comes off the mouth. He was that shepherd. Jesus was born in a manger amongst shepherds. The angels would come and give a revelation of Jesus Christ at the Christmas story. And out in the fields, all these angels, all these angels were talking about Jesus. And they were talking to shepherds. King David would be out in the field. Nobody would think anything of him. Samuel was coming because God told him to go to Jesse's people, his family, and then try and find out who's going to be the next king, who's going to be the next king. He goes from oldest, oldest, youngest, 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 youngest. He strikes out. He says, okay, I'm pretty tight with God is in a sense what Samuel says, you know. I mean, I haven't really lost many of these, so I don't understand none of your sons. And I was sent here by God. And then he asked the question, do you have another son? You know the story, right? And so what does the Bible say? Jesse says, I'm inferring this. Yeah, yeah, sure, we, we have a little guy out in the field. So Samuel says, well, bring him here. Bring him here. We'll find out if this is of God. He finds out. He breaks the oil. He pours it all over him. And right after that, he is sent out to destroy Goliath. It's so important to know this, that the land of Israel and God has been claiming that land for himself. That's what you have to understand. We talk in contemporary times about the politics and sure, that's very necessary, but it is actually God himself that calls that land for himself as a witness to the nations. And you don't hear that very often. When we come at Christmas, we're here at Thanksgiving week. I so, I so pray that you have the most wonderful Thanksgiving. I pray that you uh, meet with family and friends alike. And we're now at the holiday time. We're going to sing Christmas carols. I love singing Christmas carols. You do not want me to sing Christmas carols to you, however. I might come to your door and sing out loud my Christmas carols. Have you ever thought about these? O come, O come, Emmanuel. What does that say? O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. That's what it's speaking about that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. And then this great phrase, Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. O come thy rod of Jesse free. That's prophetic, by the way, right out of the Bible. Thine own, free thy own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save. Give them victory over the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. We, we sing these songs, but we don't, in the romantic notion of Christmas, we don't equate it with Israel, the land, the drama, the fact that God claimed it, 
the fact that our very own Messiah claims it as the footstool of his throne. We're talking about Israel from the Garden of Eden to Gethsemane and about patriarchs and prophets and King David, a King Messiah, all very elementary in the verses and the teachings and the thoughts related. I'll give you one that perhaps you've never considered. Third point, from buying land to never selling. From buying land to never selling. So I know some of you own a home, and I know some of you own land. And I also know some of you will tell me, Pastor, I never sell. I never sell. I mean, I hold that thing, and I hold that thing, and I hold that thing, because it's only going to go up, and it's only going to go up, and I'm going to hold on to it. I'm going to hold on to it. And some of you have that for multiple generations, which is beautiful. Well, God has that as well. So Abraham, in Genesis chapter 21, verse 30, just write it down as a reference, he buys Beersheba, which is in Israel and not far from Jerusalem. Some people will actually circle that as inside of Jerusalem, but I'll leave that alone for the moment. Jacob, in Genesis chapter 33, verse 18, he buys Jerusalem and Shechem. And the phraseology is very interesting there because he's actually it's so old, it's not Jerusalem by name, it's named Shalem. So Abraham is buying land around Beersheba. And he, Jacob is buying Jerusalem proper. Then King David in 2 Samuel 24, verse 24, is buying Jerusalem. A very interesting moment of worship for David there. So the land belongs to God as a witness to the nations, as an absolute witness to the nations, and God has never sold that land. He's never, ever sold it. So fourth, we're going to go from a lamb on a cross to a lamb who opens scrolls. So we continue to work through this. In Philippians chapter 2, just kind of familiarizing yourself with our Bible study that we've been going through in Philippians chapter 2 on Sundays, verse 8 says, and, and Jesus, and being found in a human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And everybody should say, Amen. Amen. From a lamb on a cross to a lamb of open scrolls. Jesus is the lamb on the cross. Nobody murdered him. It was willing. Jesus had to actually humble himself and not show his glory. Otherwise, they have no power to put him on the cross. You understand this, right? I've spoken about this over and over, but we can never emphasize that enough. It wasn't, oh, somebody got some leverage on Jesus. Bummer that you got put on the cross. No. If he shows any part of his glory, if he releases any kind of what's called the angelic host, punches Pilate and the Roman army's dead. It's a divine plan that he's willing to accept to go to the cross, to die for your sins so that you could have his life. Now, related to the Lamb of Open Scrolls, by way of reference, Revelation 5. 
Okay, so here's what you have to know about Revelation 5. So Revelation 5, there's this conversation in that chapter, who can open these prophetic scrolls? In other words, we're going to open these scrolls. We're going to open these scrolls. And these scrolls are so glorious and so fantastic that there's weeping because no one can be found to open them. Except, except we're told that there is somebody who can open these scrolls. They can break those seals, and that is the Lamb, the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. He is the only one, Revelation 5 says, who's actually worthy, worthy to actually open the scrolls and continue the prophetic timeline. Now, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be something called the rapture of the church. All of those who are born again are going to be gone. They're just going to be gone. We're all going to jump. All right, so we're going to jump really high, and uh, we're going to be taken out of this place. And I don't know when that is. It could be now. It could be later. It doesn't matter. If it's later, we know what our marching orders are. But if it's going to happen, at that point, then the lamb who is worthy to open these scrolls will begin to break these seals. And from there, we'll start a seven-year period of a great tribulation that is a time of judgment and wrath. And we're not going to be here for that because Christians have not been appointed for wrath. People who have been forgiven of their sin have not been appointed to judgment. That's the purpose of that, the cross, so that you are not appointed unto judgment. So if I can appeal to you to place your faith in Jesus Christ, it is at a minimum for those reasons. So then those scrolls will be opened, and, and they will begin a prophetic timeline that will last all the way to a millennial kingdom. Let me lastly tell you where I think we're at. You may find this interesting. From partition to Ezekiel 37. From partition to Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37, it's a fascinating chapter. And I, I will probably come back in January and teach chapter 38 exclusively as possibly what is next on the timeline. We sort of debate and argue about that in the family of God as to the order of those things. And those are all friendly uh, conversations that we have together. But in, in Ezekiel 37, the first part of that chapter is a reference to these dry bones. And they come back to life. I'm going to start at the second part of that chapter, and I want to read to you this, which takes place at verse 15, where it says, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take a stick and write on it. All right, so can you follow me on that? Can you follow me? Are you in your Bible, Ezekiel 37? And he's going to take a stick, and he's going to put it in his hand. For Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. So there's two sticks, right? And they're in the hand. And these are going to describe the 12 tribes, the tribe of Judah properly, the southern kingdom, and then the northern kingdom. Verse 17, and join them one to another into one stick, and they become one in your hand. And when your people say to you, will you not tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will join it with the stick of Judah and make them one stick. 
that they may be in one hand. And when the sticks on which you write are in your hand before their eyes, then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I take the people Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and I will gather them from all around, and I will bring them to their own. What's it say in your Bible there? Your own land. You understand what he's saying? He's given an illustration. That's all it is. Stick one. Who cares what kind of stick it is? Stick two. He's saying, put it in your hand. He's saying, put it in one hand, because I will take my people from the four corners of the earth, and because I'm showing you what I'm doing, I'm going to put them and bind them together as one people, and I am actually bringing them back into the land. Verse 22, and I will make them one nations in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them, and they shall no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or their transgressions, and I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Now look at verse 24. My servant David shall be king over them. David is dead. Long, long time, long time. This is Messiah. This is Jesus. They shall have one shepherd. Walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes, and they shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob. Dwell in the land where my fathers have lived, they and their children, their children's children shall dwell there. What's the word say there? Forever. And David, my servant, shall be prince for how long? Forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them, the word land again. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. That's a long time. My dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel. That is your Bible. For thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And church, I know everyone's in a different place. This is a really introductory Bible study. I have not even begun to plumb the depths of the significance of what all this means. And here's what it means to you and I, is that Jesus is King, He is Messiah, and He's God, and we can be saved. And we can have our sins forgiven. The current events means that these things are pressing upon us. It seems to me, and you can disagree with me, that's fine. I am telling you, it is my best academic conclusion as a man who has studied the Word of God for more than 30 years that I believe this verse, we are seeing a fulfillment of some portion of that right here, right now. And it's beautiful, actually. It's actually very, very beautiful. And what this means is that you can be saved. And what it means is that you must be saved. So what does, what does the gospel require of you? You know, we say this, what does the gospel require? Must be saved. You must be saved. We can't. What does the gospel really require of us? Well, let me make this, let me make this as direct as I can. It requires faith and repentance. Can you say the word faith? Can you say the word repentance? It requires faith and repentance. Somewhere in there, you have to believe that there's something wrong with you. And the Bible calls it sin. 
and that you need that sin burden taken off you. You're wearing it where you go. You buy a new house, it goes with you. You go to a new job, it goes with you. You get in a new relationship, it goes with you. It's a burden that sticks to you that God wants to break off through Christ. And he came and he gave scripture and he rose from the dead on the third day. As all of these prophecies that have been fulfilled so that you can know enough with your mind to make that step of faith. Repentance. Well, repentance is I turn. I turn away. It's actually partly a military term where a commander would see a soldier going one way and go, why is that soldier going the wrong way? Hey, turn around and go the right way. That's what that means. And when you repent, when you repent, you know what happens to you? Do you know what happens to you? Do you, church, know what happens to you? The Holy Spirit baptizes you, falls upon you with power, with love, with utterance, seals you to the day of redemption, fills you with the Holy Spirit, with waves and waves and waves and waves of filling. That's what happens. That's what happens with the new life. So what does the gospel require? It requires faith and repentance. Now stay with me with this phrase, but not obedience. Can you handle that? Because obedience, joyful obedience, is what the gospel produces in your life after faith and repentance. If you mess that up, you're going to be messed up. (laughs) You cannot be obedient and earn salvation. You repent and receive what you don't deserve. And the gospel will do something that I didn't expect. Myself, all Christians are like this. C.S. Lewis wrote about it so well. We find ourselves stoked in Jesus, happy in Jesus, baptized in the Holy Spirit, enjoying, enjoying obedience. Like we enjoy obedience. We enjoy transformation. We enjoy getting convicted. We enjoy being instructed. We enjoy being elevated. We love prayer. We love prayer. You guys have been great. You guys have been great. So now I'm going to pray. I need to ask you to engage in faith and repentance. I need to ask you to engage in joyful understanding of following God. I need you to engage. And so, Father, I pray now, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would grant to us faith and repentance, that you would grant to us joy in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. God, you have given us Israel to understand throughout the entirety of the Bible, your witness of love and undying, undying devotion to us as your people. Now come and save us, God. Now truly come and save us. Thanks for listening to the Ranch Church Podcast. For more information and service times, go to ranchchurch.com.